Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A couple of quick things before we kick off. We are live on Sunday the 28th of January in the Sugar Club for Podcast for Palestine with an incredible lineup of special guests, some very special guests, live music and plenty of entertainment. All proceeds are going to Gaza, so Get your tickets now on eventbrite.ie. The link is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. It'll be a great night for a great cause. And I hope to see lots and lots and lots of you there. And I also need to remind you that the Tortoise Shack is completely reliant on you. We've no ads, we've no sponsors. The only way we keep the show on the road and can continue to have the type of conversations that you're about to listen to right now is if some of you chip in, pay it forward, and keep it free for everyone. And the easiest way to do that is patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. So if you can go without the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month, give it to us. Help us keep the show on the road in 2024. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for liking, sharing. Please come on board and I hope to see lots of you next Sunday evening. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of trying to find some hope right now. Um, We are, it is the first podcast back in 2024. New year and delighted to be joined by a guest we've had on before. It's Luisa Santoro of Mendicity. Um, And for listeners who might be familiar with Mendicity, it's actually the oldest um, homeless service support organization charity uh, in the country almost 200 years old and Louisa Santoro is their um, CEO. Louisa, thanks a million for joining us today on Reboot and coming back again. Thank you very much and Happy New Year as we say the first of the year. Exactly. I'm going to try and bring a little hope into this today. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we most definitely need it. Um, happy New Year to you and Happy New Year to all our listeners as well. Louisa, maybe just to start with a little bit about Mendicity, because you were on the podcast before, but for those of um, who didn't get a chance to listen back to that, maybe you could set out kind of what is Mendicity and what you do, where you are. I know you're um, in Dublin City, but just to let people know, it'd be great. We are based on Island Street in Dublin 8. Mendicity is just over 200 years old and has at its core been a food centre for people that are in need in the local area. Obviously, that has represented many, many transitions over two centuries. What we do now is we deliver two social enterprises that give employment and opportunity for people who are currently homeless. We've often been asked is why don't we wait for them to be housed and not homeless anymore before we start extending these opportunities is because we can't wait for might never happen. So we have two social enterprise and a low threshold open access day service for people who need us. Our priority would always be to people who are sleeping outside, which is, as we know, a different group this year as it would have been this time last year, um, and to those in private emergency accommodation where they have no access to support or advocacy. So the what sort of numbers are you supporting? We would have around 300 regular service users in our service. Fortunately, not all at the same time, but um, the people that are would be, we would think core people then leave and come back or, you know, we see new faces all the time. Um, But like 300 would be a reasonably representative number of how we are, the number that we're usually supporting. And the idea behind it, and you talk there about social enterprises, is empowering people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that um, when you're homeless, so much of your life goes on hold, so much stops. And 
given their response, as we've seen, the speed of response in terms of delivery of housing, there's absolutely no sense in waiting for housing to become available before we start looking at somebody shaping a life and shaping opportunities that they need. So we have as we have a coffee truck, which is a hard ground coffee run by people who are homeless. They are trained as baristas and they provide um they, we have like this little business down on Island Street and it gives people a real sense of community, a real sense of pride and a real sense of belonging. Equally, we have a, a craft focused social enterprise where we upcycle old pallets and pieces of wood that are donated to us, um, which means that, I mean, at last check, Mendicity, there's about 17 different nationalities that are regularly using our service, which brings lots of different languages, lots of different cultures, whereas this is something that's a combined effort um, and a mixed group of mixed skills group where people can come together and create something. And what sort of things are they creating? They make furniture, outdoor furniture. They make window boxes um, ornaments. They do the okay, copper carving um a variety of things, but I mean, like we would be well known for these like small, colorful planters. Um, we get some nice commissions locally. We do some nice personalized orders. Um, and it starts out with like a palette. It's broken down, stripped, put together, um, assembled together, painted and carved. So there is lots of stops along the way. And it does represent this lovely unity of people's different talents and different skills. And in in terms of engaging people and supporting them to, you know, be able to take part in this social enterprise, to, you know, to contribute and to stay over time, how does that journey go and how do people, how do you support people and do you find people staying are able to stay with it? People are able to stay with it, but also we are coming from a fairly understanding point of view that perhaps this isn't your first choice workforce. So instead of making your homelessness a disadvantage, we're turning it into an advantage. We're saying that this is specifically for you. And this is something where you guys will find a sense of belonging. People do stay with it. People have been with us for years. Some people maybe, you know, less, you know, a less period of time. But generally, people are really happy to be involved in something that is a distraction from some other elements. Yeah. And in terms of that wider then crisis that is going on at the moment, and of course, it's gone way, way beyond a crisis. It can't be a crisis if it's 10 years going. A crisis is supposed to be something short. I know it can't be an emergency if it didn't happen right now. It's, it's sort of, again, this sustained, enduring, rolling emergency without really a brilliant plan to get ourselves out of it. You kind of, they're you know, and you've spoken about this so often and so well. I mean, there is a massive lack of effort on part of a whole government approach in terms of the delivery of housing. And what we're seeing is, you know, there is some possibility that people who are looking to access emergency accommodation will be restricted or denied from emergency accommodation because they don't have a pathway out of emergency accommodation, which I just... I. I mean, I don't know whether to laugh or cry sometimes, but you kind of think, well, if we have a if there's no pathway out of emergency accommodation, that is not the fault of the individual. Yeah, that's yeah. Fault, that's a much that's a much higher level problem. Um, so and so just yeah. explain that in terms of what what you're talking about there. So there, there's always, you know, we're 
our we operate where there are a lot of speed bumps, a lot of barriers and a lot of hurdles. And for somebody to access emergency accommodation, they need to establish that they are homeless and they need to establish and they need to be verified as homeless. They need to be, um, you know, they need to establish a local connection. These are all restrictions for somebody who's looking to access emergency accommodation. I had a lady with me this morning. I made a phone call on her behalf. She was refused accommodation um, and even though she has nowhere to sleep tonight and was directed to, um, she's an Italian, and was directed to her embassy, which, you know, diplomatic solutions are not going to provide her with somewhere to keep out of the cold. I mean, we're talking about minus six tonight, um, which, you know, again, rather than getting somebody into services, supporting them and moving them forward, we keep somebody at arm's length from services, which means their circumstances are disadvantaged over time. So she's not going to be any less homeless tomorrow by being refused accommodation tonight. But she's certainly going to be worse off in lots of other ways. Yeah. If, yeah. you know, to illustrate that as a point, but certainly we're not making it easy enough for people to move forward. We're not, we're holding them back at every turn. I say we, I mean, I don't want to say they, I say we, but, you know, as socially in terms of how we deliver these services, I mean, at the moment, it's no secret that there are over 400 people who are applying for international protection, who have nowhere to sleep. And again, minus six is pretty cold. We have a full infrastructure here in terms of emergency accommodation through the Department of Housing that is being refused to this group of people. And we need to start looking at this from a citizen's point of view. Why would we why would we restrict this from one department to another? Yeah, it's it does. It doesn't make any sense that we have services that are there and available being restricted from people who are homeless, who are who are without home, without shelter. It makes no sense to me that, you know, like as a taxpayer, as a taxpayer, I'm going to be paying ultimately or we're all paying for an empty bed while somebody is being refused because for they're from another part of Europe. I, I, you know, it flies in the face of any reality that I'd like to be part of. And, and, and alongside that, as you say, they're not going to be any less homeless in two days time or a week's time. And this, of course, is creating and, and adding to, as I've made the point, that the narrative that Ireland is full and that we don't, we can't accommodate. And it appears to me that um, government and state uh, bodies are essentially buying into and using the narrative that Ireland is full by refusing to accommodate you know, asylum seekers and saying that, you know, we don't have the accommodation and and it's a really, really dangerous, sad path. It's a really dangerous, sad path. And we also say we are now in a position where, you know, our highest level of government is asking local communities to do something that they're refusing to do. I mean, you know, I like to say that we can be leading by example and you're saying, well, if it's, you know, if the government are demanding that people in various communities take up the slack that they are not prepared to put their shoulder into themselves. I think that that's tragic. I mean, I know that recently, obviously, we've come from a really challenging time over the last couple of months and the there was obviously major unrest in Dublin. But to hear uh, to hear senior politicians coming out and saying that for the people that were involved, they were going to cut their social welfare, I think is one of those subtle and damning 
and really passive aggressive things to say. It's, I mean, I was shocked because it does imply that if you're, if you're of a particular view, you're obviously attached to some social welfare system, which just, you know, it's insidious. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's quite a significant shift in a short space of time as well in approach. Yeah, I mean, this time last year, you know, when I think back to the, the good old days of 2023, we would not have seen an international protection applicant um, come across our door because there was a different there was a different system. There was a different pathway for them. Um, and in often case, I would say like a significantly better pathway than the emergency accommodation provided through the uh, through and under the Department of Housing. But now we know there's absolutely no question that. A year down the line, we are yet to see a cross-departmental solution. We are yet to see all of these departments coming together to provide a solution. Yeah, we're seeing it completely siloed and separated. and Everything has become so polarized. Everything seems to be so black or white, which does create a real inability to have a conversation that is questioning, that scrutinizes where we're going, that asks the, that makes those critical points. Everything is an either a black or white and a yes or no answer. And that's not always the case. And of course, alongside the international protection applicants, we have the, you know, rising homelessness crisis here yeah. and the the connections between them um, and also then the way in which they've been used, you know, we're seeing the far right using them saying, oh, you know, you know how's our own so-called, um, you know, first and the failure to treat homelessness in Ireland as an emergency for yeah. almost a decade now ha- has given the space for the far right to grow and to use these arguments. And it's just it's again indicative that. And of course, we know, like seeing the burning down of buildings like the far right no more care about housing or homelessness than, you know, than anything that it's just used. But there's no getting away from the fact that they're able to their message is getting wider resonance because of the government's failure to treat homelessness here in Ireland as an emergency. Absolutely. Because of the government's failing to speak honestly to its voters, its representation, its citizens. I mean, this is the, you know, where fear takes hold. It's because of lack of assurance. And that's really the problem. I mean, this is this whole narrative of, you know, what we kind of, we have to look at our language and how we describe people. And, you know, one person's unvetted man is another person's father of two. I mean, it's just like oh, the way that we are using this language to instill fear is is unforgivable. And I think that there is a massive lack of response in terms of open discussion and open dialogue from leadership in terms of countering that. Like the, the, that, I think the comment where I thought, you know, that we're going to cut their social welfare, I I just thought, well, you've lost the room here. Mm. You know, you're not actually appealing to people in a way that you can say, look, I understand. I mean, you know, people whose services are stretched, people whose communities are, are, are being adversely affected by poverty that that you can't just say well we're going to cut your social welfare stops you know like no stick no no carrot yeah yeah and in the other thing you know that as we have made the case all along that homelessness is completely preventable and that the idea that 
the homelessness crisis itself is the result of, you know, increased immigration of asylum seekers is just completely wrong because we know that the root causes of homelessness and um, the absolute majority of homelessness in Ireland is, you know, rent increases, evictions by um, many, many Irish landlords. Mm. It is the the lack of social housing and the point being made recently, um, the lack of prioritization of those who are homeless within social housing allocations. Um, and there, there seems to be this real, what what's very kind of disturbing, I think, is, is again, the way that that whole shift in the focus on things like the eviction ban, on things like those root cause of homelessness, is now shifted, oh, it's all on to immigrants to blame for all this and asylum seekers. I mean, I don't want to oversimplify a problem, but, it, you know, the root, the, 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 the address how to address homelessness is housing i mean this is it couldn't be more simple it really couldn't be more simple we have a lack of supply of housing and we that lack of supply of housing is choking every level of society whether it be you know your students in Maynooth who have nowhere to stay people sleeping in their car people who are working in a tent trying to you know function in a normal you know day-to-day job but we have a lack of housing we talk about the numbers of as Dara Bryan often says, our friends from Ukraine that we have welcomed, um, how many houses have been built for those friends? I I think the answer is probably zero. Yeah, it's probably, I, I don't have the figures, but a few hundred modular homes maybe. Yeah, I mean, from that's... like a hundred thousand, like it's, it's that, I mean, that's scandalous. And then you're, a yes, where there's a continuing call to, you know, wider out into society to try and pick up that slack in terms of welcoming people into their homes, which they have done. But, and, you know, I think there's no question that people have done their part, but not all people. And I think the people in real power have not. Yeah. And I do think as well that there's a, there's an issue in the media about how this has all been discussed because there's also many, many, as you say, there are many people who've welcomed Ukrainians, but also many people who have welcomed and supported um, asylum seekers around the country who've organized, you know, who have a, a relationship and ongoing support. I think of lots of groups like Sanctuary Runners, for example, um, which I support and they, you know, getting integration, you know, involvement of and just the huge welcoming that actually the majority of people are feel and are doing and and it and the the argument and narrative and discourse has all been pulled to this you know idea that you know it's almost like everybody now is anti immigration and you're going hang on a minute that's not actually the truth it's almost as though you have two options you know there's like and there you're damned if you do and damned if you don't either everybody is racist or, you know, completely supports the idea of open borders and, you know, like like universal social welfare. Neither is true. But, you know, this is where you're sort of being forced into, which means it makes it very difficult to come out and speak about this in any in any balanced way. Um, And, you know, just keep like refuting the far right or some group of welfare cheats is simply not going to do us any any good. We need to start engaging in this conversation in a real way. We can see all across Europe um, the rise of this type of politics, right wing politics. I don't happen to fall into that category at all. And yet we still have to have some kind of discourse. And 
that's absent at the moment. And I think it's really sad. I think it's I think it's sad and dangerous. And how what sort of discourse do you think and dialogue we should have? I think we need to have a like the government needs to come out and properly explain the migration p- policies, the policies that we have in terms of housing, the access to housing. It shouldn't be left to somebody like me to explain how difficult or easy it is to get emergency accommodation. That should be coming from the Department of Housing. And there needs to be a major yeah. communication strategy. At the moment, we see that, um, you know, there is a huge use of social media for maybe a negative way. I think maybe we need to step, the government needs to step into this with a communication plan and certainly a cross-departmental, a cross-departmental solution. The idea that this falls to integration and not housing is just bonkers to me. Absolutely yeah. bonkers. We're asking, we're asking communities to be completely race and color blind when the government is refusing to do so. So how could you possibly expect to replicate that at a community setting? Yeah. And, and just the wider question of we, you're talking before we came on air around the whole issue of mental health and, and the impact of, you know, being in homelessness on mental health. And, and there often, um, is this discussion around almost this argument, not argument, but narrative again from, you know, we've heard it from the Taoiseach, we've heard it from others that, oh, there's many reasons why people become homeless and often mental health is, you know, presented as one of the big reasons why people become homeless. And there is, I think, a need for a pushback against that, that, um, you know, that actually, as you said earlier, it's the lack of housing and the way in which housing is treated as this individualized asset um, that is responsible of each individual, that means those who have different vulnerabilities or illnesses are um, more at risk in terms of losing that rather than something which we look in Finland, you know, housing is part of wider supports. But that issue of mental health, we still have to be able to um, discuss it and, you know, highlight as, as you know, as, as you have and others that mental health is a major issue um, affecting those who are experiencing homelessness and the different factors behind that and its role in homelessness is a difficult one as well. I think, though, that, you know, the blaming, victim shaming and blaming people for their circumstances, whether it's like, well, you're homeless because your mental health is poor. Yeah. Actually, this is such a this such a red herring. If someone has stable accommodation, there's no question that that has a massive and positive effect on their mental health. It's such a great example of how actually you're being gaslit at a fairly, a fairly professional level here that someone's mental health will improve with accommodation that is stable. I can tell you now that if I was put into a hostel with five strangers in my room after a week, of seeing people coming and going, people that I have, you know, maybe absolutely zero affinity with, my mental health will be worse than it is today. So I, I think we're completely letting ourselves off the hook. The government is letting itself off the hook by saying the complex reasons for people becoming homeless. If we could address the housing supply issue, we might be able to look at some of what could be complex issues. But at the moment, the reason people are homeless is because they have nowhere to live. Yeah, yeah. And then what are you seeing in terms of that, the mental health experiences, impacts that, you know, people are living through in homelessness? And mental health is something that we see on a daily basis. We certainly, we do, we are not a clinical service. And I, you know, I'm like definitely, I'm holding up my hand. I'm speaking completely as a layperson. We see people where they are really, really struggling and completely stigmatized. There is no 
say, assessment in terms of the allocation of accommodation. So you might see people in a room where one person has just come out of prison um, on, you know, short-term release. Another person maybe come out of a psychiatric ward. Two people that have come out of rehab and two people that are working. Like this, it's this massive melting pot without any sort of grouping together of people that where you can target supports the people that we're seeing whose mental health is poor the reason some of our only responses when we try to reach out and look for support for them is to say well you'll have to call the guards if they become disruptive which i really is my as i said to you my last resort because being your poor mental health is not a criminal act yeah. So I'm not going to call the guards, the guard. I think it's unfair on the guards, actually. I mean, it's unfair, hugely unfair on the person. All it does is it severs the trust and relationship that we have with them. We will only call the guards if it's if there's if there's something criminal has happened. And certainly somebody who's not doing well, that's not a crime to me. Yeah. And it's, of course, part of the, the wider lack of mental health services and that you know so many people are affected by and in terms of this do you in that lack of support is it the lack of resources is it the lack of understanding the lack of trauma-informed understanding among services um or is it the difficulty in navigating you know the need for you to have an address somewhere is it you know what are what do you think are the factors behind that lack of support that is there and lack of services there in terms of mental health for those who are in homelessness I don't think it is a lack of, I don't see it as a lack of resources. I see it, uh, the allocation of resources is a greater problem than the lack thereof. And I think our, our priority in terms of how we get to people who need those services, because, you know, in terms of mental health, as we can say, we can say categorically that stable accommodation, reasonable support, people's mental health improves. Uh, yeah. What we're doing actually is preventing that from happening by restricting them from that kind of stability. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, it's in terms of the length of time people are in emergency accommodation for, you know, we see that it has, you know, the impacts are more detrimental the longer they experience and, and are in emergency accommodation. We're seeing now, you know, for the first time, um, 4,000, we've hit over 4,000 children and their families being in emergency accommodation. And increasingly, they are spending over six months in accommodation, emergency accommodation. Some, um, a smaller proportion, but a growing proportion are there over a year. Yeah, And that length of time for children and families to be out of stable housing to be in these, um, you know, these settings which are completely inappropriate for and uh, destructive indeed for family living is just, I, I'm kind of, at a certain extent, despairing um, around the response to this. It seems like when I think, you know, back to, um, you know, three or four years ago, I think even back to 2016 when we were highlighting the rise in family and children mm, business yeah. first, you know, this sense that, this was an utter scandal, an utter shame. How are we accepting this as a republic, as a society? And here we are. Um, this year is 2024, is 10 years on since kind of that first emergent uh, child and family homelessness. It has been become normalized. All of this has become more normalized. It has become normal. I mean, as we see each month, each, each when they, they, they release the figures as well, which I, I kind of always 
makes me smile. But um, they release homeless figures at five yeah. past five on a Friday evening, which yeah. sort of, you know, like stops the conversation in its tracks. Yeah. So by the weekend, you're like, I have acclimatized myself to this new normal of, you know, 11,000, 12,000, 13,000. I mean, that's absolutely shocking in a country as rich as we, as rich as we are. Um, you know, the, like, there's, I know there's been a number of great pieces recently. I think the Irish Times did a terrific piece about the cost of emergency accommodation just going up and down Gardner Street. Yeah. Which is utterly, you know, for that, we're not getting any value for money here as taxpayers. So this is where this remains a solvable problem. We are a country that has the resources and we are not spending them in the way that I think that we should or the way that would address this as a hot topic. There is no priority to build houses. You know, the over-dependence on the private market, the over-dependence on half payments, the lack of, you know, if you're starting to build social housing, you have a, a national asset at your disposal, as opposed to lining the pockets of private providers. Now, I mean, listen, you know, and I've said this to you before, I am not anti-commerce, far from it. And I think that private providers are there to fill the space, but they are, the the government are letting themselves off the hook by not having a really aggressive, an aggressive, you know, like a multi-term housing policy, because we seem to be thinking only in the next election period that we need to be thinking about 20 years down the line. We need to be thinking about what does this look like, you know, f- 10 years from today, 15 years from today, and we need to sign up to, and I think that, you know, as citizens, we would sign up to something that gave an aggressive house building policy over a two decade period. I know 20 years is a long time and I don't, this is, it's, it's far from a quick fix, but now you can, we keep looking over our shoulder on, well, we didn't do anything last year and we didn't do anything the year before. There is so much the housing for all plan and the delivery of housing, social and otherwise, has become so complicated that it's understand. It, it's difficult to understand. It's difficult to get your head around. You're also being bombarded by success stories where we know that they aren't there. So a building plan is something that we can all. It's tangible. We can all relate to it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that's. Um the utter, you know, failure to build social housing, to build affordable housing, um, and it's not just a failure, it's an ideology. Do you know what mm. I mean? It was a belief that the market is the best way to do it, still there. Um, and, and alongside that, the treatment of housing as an investment asset, you know, yeah. the, the support for landlords to essentially treat tenants as income generating um assets as well rather than giving them tenants rights because it is an issue not just of supply it is also how you regulate that market as well um underpins what's happening um and i think that you know we look to there's elections coming up uh we have local elections and and probably a general election within um well we will have a general election within the next 14 months most definitely Housing and homelessness, you know, housing in particular will be a major issue. But the question of homelessness and how much that will be in the election um, is going to be a big question, along with the concerns around, um, or not the concerns, but there will be the, there's no doubt that anti-immigration candidates are going to be put forward as well. And homelessness, the conversation around homelessness, the policies will be, um, you know, distorted. And so I think there is a real need and maybe, you know, to get your reflection on it, how do you think we can put or do you think we should put homelessness into the elections and make it an election issue around? I think that we need to have 
better information coming out of government. I think if we can put housing squarely on the on the government agenda, homelessness will follow insofar as, you know, these two are inextricably linked. But at the moment, we don't have accurate information in terms of the scale of homelessness. We know that if there's, you know, 13,000 who are using emergency accommodation, there's 15,000 homeless. There are people that are, you know, on family floors, sleeping in their cars. None of those are counted in this. So it actually, you know, I don't want to make everybody more depressed than already, you know, it's the middle of January here. But I mean, definitely that is the absolutely that's the smallest figure. But in order to have a pathway from homelessness, there needs to be a housing solution. This is housing driven, entirely housing driven. I mean, this kind of idea that we are now building large developments that are only to rent, I think, is catastrophic. I think I just think it's one of the worst policy decisions that we could make. Um, we need to be building social housing and there needs to be a penalty for local authorities that don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And and of course we need to develop the capacity within local authorities and, and as I've argued for a public construction company mm-hmm. to actually have the capacity within the state to do this. So we're not dependent on developers and the market. Um and I, we actually treat it like health like education that's um and i think that's been the fundamental flaw that we haven't seen housing and treated housing as a public good which it is as an essential public good just as we see you know people can't survive without health care um and we treat education as a as a social right it's in our constitution yet housing is more fundamental than health and education Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, when it comes to, I always, I kind of think about, you know, when, if ever somebody needs to make a complaint to the DORHE, which sometimes they do like through our service or whatever, there's a form and the form has your name and your address on it. And I, I, it always, I sort of go, God, talk about poking somebody in the eye. I mean, you know, (laughs) you're like, like, what your address yeah. don't have one i'm homeless you know so yeah, you kind of yeah, think yeah. yeah like it's it's that kind of that sort of subtlety of reminding you exactly where you're at and where your place is i mean sometimes when i feel particularly um unoptimistic there's a ken loach film i don't know if you've ever seen it the spirit of 45 no i've seen that one go, watch it okay because okay. it's all about like you know post-war england where they built this massive social housing infrastructure like literally they pulled it together and built this amazing infrastructure and i sort of i you know when i some days when i think it can't be done i look at this and go like it actually can i mean yeah. there are roadmaps for this there are roadmaps all across europe for this we're just on some different some weird path that where we're not seeing it as a priority we're not seeing it as a priority but we need to start demanding it and we need to start demanding it as voters that it becomes a priority what is the manifesto? What is your party plan in terms of the delivery of housing? And I don't want to hear HAP. I don't want to hear private landlords. I don't want to hear low cost rental, build to rent. I want to hear social housing. How many units? And yeah. people like parties need to be held to account. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, well, we didn't do it because, you know, Brexit, the war in Ukraine, um, you know, Gaza. Like there's, like, there's always going to be a reason. But we need to find reasons to say we're going to power ahead with this because it is essential. Because I think about, you know, like I know you have children. I have a daughter myself. I kind of think when when it comes to their time, like we're laying those tracks. We're laying those tracks. And what is this legacy that we're going to give to people afterwards? Absolutely. And and I do think that um, the question of the system being set up 
to deliver what you talked about there, you know, on a massive scale. And of course, we have done this before. We've done it in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, and there are ways we can do it actually even quicker than we did it then. You yeah. know, we now have fast build factory housing that can you know there's a, as i point to there there are factories in ireland's building um fast build housing but it's all being done uh, for the private market yeah. at the moment um but there you know there are factories that can build four thousand homes a year like in one factory and the question is why are we not setting up five factories to build uh, 20,000 additional, you know, public housing a year. This is the, this is what's possible and using our vacant and derelict property. And it does come back to, I think it's beyond just government. It's the banks as well. It's, it's those who, the estate agents, it is the investor funds, it is the developers, um, who want to keep the system as it is. Look, we, as I said, you know, we have the resources. It's just not the priority. And I, I don't mean that, yeah. you know, for you and me, we, I mean the other we. Uh, so yeah. really, like when you hear about like jo- job creation and jo- an exciting um, announcement, and it's not that I have anything against big pharmaceutical companies, but I would be so excited to hear an enormous factory in the Midlands that was going to make prefabricated housing, you know, on a scale of 10 to 100. And, you know, that would really excite me. And you're kind of going, and I think it's not that it would excite me. It would excite everybody. We'd all start going, wow, this is, you know, this is really something that we are going to benefit from. That we've been so, we're sort of you know, so hemmed in by what we're being told is good news that we've forgotten what it looks like. I Honestly, <laughs> that, you know, to say something like that, I think any of us, if you could imagine this, you know, future announcement about a factory that was going to create the framework that was going to like deliver to X amount of local authorities, you know, like even just sort of thinking about it now, I'm going, yeah, that would be, you know, pretty, that would be a pretty joyous occasion. Yeah, no, it absolutely would, and it's and it's completely possible. It is completely possible, um, and and that is where I do come back to. I think there is a real issue with it's not just effort, a lack of effort, or to explain why there's a lack of effort is those interests who are very very influential and lobbying, um, hard to avoid. You know, this huge increase in a supply that would mean a reduction in rents, or you know, a reduction in house prices. Um, and I think that was another piece of hope was that the um, opinion poll in the Irish Independent showed that an overwhelming majority, 70% of people of the public were in favour of house prices falling, a significant yeah. fall in house prices, yeah. which is a big change. It is a big change in attitudes. And I do think that there's a an acceptance amongst the public and a, and a complete support to make houses um, and housing actually affordable and available. And Absolutely. That it's not, you know, a, like a, it's not a pension fund investment asset. You know, it yeah. is somewhere ultimately, you know, I think even though like, yes, we have a very strong, um, loyalty to home ownership. Honestly, you know, at its, at its most primal, it's somewhere to keep the rain off you, you know, and then yeah. everything else comes after it. You know, yes, it's nice that it's an asset. And yes, it's nice that it sometimes appreciates. And yes, all of those things are amazing. But ultimately it's like, this is, you know, better than sleeping in my car. That's you kind of at it's, you know, at point one on a scale of one to 20. Um, I mean, I was listening to the news last night and there is some proposal, you know, a, a potentially hostile board takeover by a Canadian pensions company of an Irish property company. I just, you know, and it just kind of made me bristle a little bit. I was like, we really lost our way in terms of, you know, maybe 10 years ago, 
what was very much in our favor is that the majority of housing stock was owned by people who were here. Um, I'm, you know, we are, we're definitely, we're straying off that nice true path. That's, yeah, you know, no, that's, absolutely. The, the corporate, you know, foreign takeover of our property um, and of our homes, our homes fundamentally is, is really, really disastrous. And it is, the scale of it is, is huge. It's huge now. It is, you know, thousands and thousands um, tens of thousands of our homes are now owned by, you know, various forms of international vulture, vampire investment funds, um, private equity funds, and increasingly paying, you know, paying very little tax. Um, and they are being defended by government, being supported by government. But we do need to take, I think, you know, with your word, to take a different path. And just listen, Louisa, before we finish, um, in terms of yourself and how, you know, you're working, um, you know, supporting people and, you know, doing, you know, incredible work. It must be very difficult yourself in terms of, you know, continuing to turn up, to show up. How how do you find that? How What keeps you going? It, yeah, I mean, so like some days are definitely easier than others. I mean, the only thing I would say is that I... I remind myself that it is an absolute privilege to be working in a role where your values run right through all of your actions. Okay. So there's a lot of people that maybe, and you know, to all my friends out there in corporate, there's a lot of people that maybe are working in places where you think, okay, the salary is good, but you know, if I don't do this spreadsheet, what really happens? Where, you know, really it's, like it is a great thing to be able to say that you can show up, you can speak your truth, you can find your alliance in an organization, um, you can find your alliance with the people that you're working for and find it. I, I take great pride in that. And it is one thing that maybe that helps me on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's still, though, it it has to be difficult in terms of, you know, the, yeah, just, just sustaining yourself because there's burnout and, you know, people working in, in the charity sector and frontline across public services, there is real issues of burnout because you're taking up the slack and, and supporting people who are living through very, very difficult situations. And, you know, I feel it myself, people contact me, you know, regularly and, and try and support them around advocacy. Um, it's, it's difficult, but you are yeah. right. It is also a privilege to be able to do it. And, I like to focus a bit more on the privilege than the difficulty. So, yeah. you know, but at the same time, you know, you're absolutely right. And I couldn't, you know, I would honestly be saying, and I say it to, you know, to people who are thinking of social care as a pathway, I say it's not for everyone. I mean, it really, it really isn't. And you do have to look after yourself. Um, you know, like, listen, the first thing you hear on an airplane, put your own oxygen mask on first. And that is often true. And I mean, you know yourself in terms of people coming to you, like you, it, it can be often fairly thankless work. It's, you know, you're, dealing with somebody at sometimes a, a really low point like I like to think that that's a meaningful engagement but they don't you know often come back afterwards and go listen that was that was pretty crap and I'm glad you were there so that's you know it's it's something to be mindful that's not why we do the work that we do but yes it is it's challenging it's challenging at the moment obviously charities are you know often the 
like the whipping boy. There's, you know, there are issues that affect the entire sector in terms of of governance that I find very more difficult to stomach than perhaps what somebody represents to me as an individual. So, you know, I, I find that more disheartening in many, many ways than the actual face to face work. Yeah, yeah. And and listen, uh, in terms of if people want to help Mendicity um, or get involved, is the ways they can? There are many ways that they can. If they visit mendicity.org, um, they'll certainly see through our social media channel, uh, channels are to social enterprises. There's lots of ways, whether it be buying a cup of coffee from the terrific guys down at Hard Ground on Island Street, buying something that we make in our social enterprise, volunteering, donating. All of these are ways we really like to have people involved. And we are, we do have an amazing number of really good supporters and ambassadors as I see them for our service. Great. Well, listen, I really would encourage listeners to get involved if you can um, at all. And listen, Louisa, it was absolutely wonderful to have you back on. It's always great to chat. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you again. Thanks, Ray. Yeah, we'll talk talk to you very soon. And, and for our listeners, there are a couple of um, things that you can do along with supporting um, Mendicity. There is, of course, the Tenants Union and um, the new Tenants Union Katu, which are doing um, great work supporting tenants across the country around different various issues and um you can get involved with them, katu.org. Also, there is a petition which um, I've set up. It's going up since going since last year uh, with Uplift. If you want to sign it, it's called hashtag um, it's gaffs for all. And it has 10 policy changes that are needed and in particular around the right to housing. And um, if you want to go and sign that, that is something you can do. And then also on the issue of Gaza and Palestine, listeners are very um, much aware and familiar of the, the work we've been doing on that. There is a protest this coming Saturday, National Day of Action um, in Dublin. So if you are around, please come along to that. And the other issue is we are asking people to contact your TD um, or councillors to get them to call on the government to support the South African um, uh, South Africa bringing Israel to the International Court of Justice and to get Ireland to support that. So if you can, please contact and highlight that and keep sharing it on social media. Um, we really appreciate all that you do and thank you so much for your kind words. There was really incredible feedback to our last podcast um, with the psychologist for Palestine. Really, really um really lovely feedback but really it was it the podcast itself had quite an impact on people so that was great to see and thank you to uh, Dr Meg Ryan who was really really great on that and hopefully we'll have her back again soon so thank you so much and we look forward to the year again and thank you so much for all your messages and we will talk to you all very very soon <laughs>